We're continuing to move through the book of Genesis, and we are in chapter 2. And I want to I wanna speak to you from God's Word today about divine paradise and the foundational reality of, of this idea of paradise. And maybe even as I say that word paradise, I wonder what comes to your mind. I wonder how you would define paradise. I mean, what, what sounds like paradise to you? What kind of things do you typically think about when you think of some kind of marvelous reality, some kind of utopian world? One author said this, that paradise is a place without pain, without suffering, a time when love and peace flourish. Paradise has been the object of hopes, dreams, and desires of every single generation, deep in the bones of every person who experiences pain, injustice, the death of a loved one. There aches this longing for a place of wholeness, a thirst for a time of healing. Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says it like this, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. This is etched into the very nature of humanity. It's why we we don't accept this world as it is. We understand just fundamentally, instinctively, we sense and feel that something is not right. Our present world is out of sync. Deep down inside of us, every one of us believes there has to be something better than this, a better time and a better place. And you know, it's logical and right to assume that every human desire has an object to satisfy that desire. In fact, C.S. Lewis famously wrote these words. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. People yearn for paradise. And paradise is meant for people to know and love and enjoy. Our very nature dictates our desire for God and our longing for His presence. And and deep down inside, again, we understand that somehow paradise and the presence of God are linked together in an inseparable way. You see, the Garden of Eden is universally compelling because it tells us of a paradise within humanity's grasp. A paradise that humanity actually once possessed and enjoyed that had unlimited potential, incredible beauty. Commentator Bruce Walkie says this, that the gut-wrenching decision of the first couple, every human in its impulsiveness yet is so very tragic in its consequences. It grieves us. It infuriates us. It leaves us pining, he says, for paradise lost. In chapter 2, we come across the story of divine paradise. We see how it was created, by whom and for whom it was created, and ultimately we're going to find out how it was lost. And it's a foundational desire of the human heart because it is a foundational part of God's good creation. The passage begins in verse 4 with a a textual marker. In the Hebrew, it's called a toledot. And in chapter 2, all the way through chapter 11, we're going to find this marker. Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, is giving us section markers to help us see that there were defined units of thought, groupings of texts, that are meant to be kept together. This section here begins in chapter 2, verse 4. It's going to carry us all the way to the very end of chapter 4. It's intended to be one unit, and it's part of this larger picture that takes us all the way to chapter 11, verse 9, which describes the fall of humanity and its results. But before we get into the fall, 
Genesis 2 takes a closer look at God's preparation of a divine paradise. And I want you to consider how important this is for the people of God from all times, from ages past, to the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness who've come out of slavery, to the Israelites who are in Babylon or Assyria because of exile, to the church of today that is sojourning, so to speak, through the wilderness, longing for, waiting for our heavenly home, a new heavens and a new earth where Christ will rule and reign where God will dwell with his people again. It's a sharp reminder that the experience that we have, the experience of God's people, is one of living in a broken world. And it's not the way it was intended to be. And if we understand what it was intended to be, we can understand where God is going to take it. Genesis 2 takes a closer look at God's preparation of this divine paradise. What exactly is divine paradise? In this chapter, we're going to see this. We're going to see that divine paradise is about God's people in God's place, fulfilling God's purpose under God's protection. That's what we see in this chapter, and this is how God, in essence, defines paradise. Let's begin by reading in verse 4. The Word of God says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Let's pull this apart. Let's begin with the first part of that sentence I gave you there, that definition. Divine paradise is first about God's people. Genesis 2 no longer describes God in all of His majesty as the Creator, like we saw in chapter 1, but it begins to give a much more personal account of His care and interaction with His creation. He's zooming in, so to speak, on the sixth day, and he's wanting to give us greater clarity in terms of what he's done in creating humanity. The emphasis on this section is is not as much um, how he did it, but that he did it in a particular way. And what's being emphasized most, what you need to see, again, is this kind of intimate, loving, gracious care in which he specifically made humanity. Humanity is not like the rest of God's creation. We've seen this already in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. But right now, verse 4 and 5 kind of give us this backdrop. Before God creates people, He describes the state of the the land or the earth. And what we see is, in essence, the world is incomplete. It's good, but it's, it's not yet complete. There's no tree, there's no bush, there's no agriculture or irrigation, and there's no human 
Moses does not intend to give us, by the way, a precise chronological account. If you're trying to line this up exactly with with the, the days of creation, it's not going to work. There's a kind of literary artistry that Moses is applying here. And so it's, it's not so much a chronological account as it is a topical account, a thematic account where he's trying to emphasize certain things. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to show how humanity is, again, the pinnacle of God's creative work and how humanity is essential in accomplishing God's good purposes for all of creation. He's telling us here not just the way things are, but what God's going to do to transform it. And the the key to understanding this is right here, he's going to create people. There's a shift in the original language that you might miss in the the English Bible. There's a shift from chapter one to chapter two when it comes to the name of God. This is incredibly powerful. In chapter one, as God's name is being used, the term in the Hebrew is the, the word Elohim. Elohim is, is somewhat of a generic term for God. It speaks to his sovereignty over all of creation. But here, there's a shift in chapter 2. Specifically, when God's name is used, his name is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is the covenantal name for God. It's the way in which the Israelites would have understood God's intimate loving kindness towards them, that God had entered into a covenant with his people. And so what's happening here is that that God is establishing here this unique kind of relationship with humanity. He is, in other words, think about this, to the people who are receiving this, they're wandering through the wilderness, maybe they're in exile, maybe it's the church today where we're reading this and thinking, okay, God, like, what's going on here? God is saying, don't worry, I I am Yahweh Elohim, I'm the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I have a plan, and I have made promises to my people, and nothing that I have promised and spoken will fail to come to pass. This is comfort for God's people. The same God who created the world by the word of his power is the same God who holds his people in the palm of his hands. In all of the ups and downs of life, we've looked at the creation of man, like I said already briefly, a couple of weeks ago now, and so some of this will be a little bit of a reminder, but in Hebrew, there's a play on words in in verse 7. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The play on words is is poetic in a sense, but it's telling us the substance of humanity and the purpose of humanity. Adam, Adam in the Hebrew, is made from Adamah, the ground. He is an earthling. He is a grounder. And again, it's a poetic way of saying that humanity has a symbiotic relationship with the earth itself. We're going to see this unfold in the sense of what Adam's called to do. But the idea here is that we're made from from dust, and God provides life to Adam by breathing into him the very breath of life so that he becomes a living being. God creates and fashions the first man from the dust of the ground. And again, this shows the intimate personal attention to the formation of both Adam and Eve. He will create Eve from the rib of the man. Again, this is very, very precise and particular. It's interesting here, as he talks about the the, the mud, the dirt, this is the the idea. He he creates him from the substance of the ground. Let me make a, a New Testament connection for you. Have you ever read through the Gospel of John? Uh, We're reading through it now and come across John chapter 9 where Jesus is is going about and he's healing, right? He's preaching the kingdom and he's healing. Now keep in mind, uh, the book of John is kind of like a Genesis account. We've seen that already in John chapter 1. In the beginning, he's, he's pulling us back into Genesis. He's, he's saying, in effect, John is, that his gospel is kind of the, the recounting of a new creation work of God. It's interesting, when you get to chapter 9, you have this miracle that Jesus performs. And what he does is there's this blind man. He's born blind. And, and again, this is both physical, but it's, it's a spiritual picture that here is a man who's, yes, physically blind, but he's blind. He's dead in his sin. And what does he need? He needs the new creation power of Jesus Christ to bring him to life. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the dirt from the ground and he creates mud with it. Remember what he does? He takes the mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. And when the man goes and washes it away, he opens his eyes and he can see. 
And the picture, again, here's what you need to see. Jesus is pointing all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 when God created man out of the mud, out of the dust of the ground. What Jesus is saying is this. Don't you realize I am the same God who created all things? And if you come to me, I will listen. I will recreate you and give you new spiritual life. Now, we've, we've talked a lot when we've, we've been going through Genesis about the, the polemical nature to this. There's an apologetic side of this book where Moses is actually addressing, he's confronting the dominant worldviews of the day in the ancient Near East. And what he's doing is he's providing a better, uh, more satisfying alternative. He's providing truth where they're living in error. And so what we see here is actually fascinating when we stack it up to the, to the ancient Near Eastern Babylonian myth. We've talked about it a lot. It's, it's called the Enuma Elish. That Babylonian myth is the most popular creation story of the time. And listen to this. It's fascinating. In this creation myth, the gods, there's a, remember, there's a pantheon of gods in the ancient worldview. And what Moses is saying is this. Actually, there's only one true God who's above all the other gods. But in the ancient worldview, in this Babylonian myth, the gods are actually tired of work and they start to complain to the, the supreme god in the pantheon whose name is Marduk. He's the king of the gods. And so all the, the lesser gods come to him. They start whining and complaining. The work's too hard. We're getting tired. And so Marduk comes up with this brilliant idea, this ingenious plan to outsource the god's workload. Guess what he does? He creates humanity. And this is the, the line in this, this myth. Marduk's line is this, I will establish a savage. That's pretty accurate. Man shall be his name. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. Now, most of the other creation myths from around this time, they have essentially the same basic idea. The gods are tired and worn out. Work is thought of as a burden. It's beneath the gods. Now, contrast this with what we've already seen in the creation story. Not, not only does God not get tired from work, it seems like he loves his work. I mean, it's nothing to him. In fact, he delights in his work. He, he's, he's worshipped because of his work. But here, in the ancient worldview, humanity is created as cheap slave labor to do the work of the gods for them, to give them food and drink and sacrifices in the temple, and interestingly, to dig irrigation ditches. That way the gods can just sit back and be at ease. And to add to that, in these creation myths, the gods are constantly annoyed with the people. They want nothing to do with them. They're frustrated with them. They think they're weak, pitiful people. Contrast that with the God who created humanity so intimately. He cares so deeply. This is the one true creator God. He's nothing like Marduk and his divine friends. And instead of creating humanity to offload all his work because it's beneath him, the story of the Bible opens with God himself working to create a world for humanity to experience and enjoy Him. Humanity isn't created as cheap slave labor to do the bidding of Yahweh God. But rather, humanity is created as His partners who live in relationship with Him. He's not frustrated by us or with us. We are deeply loved by Him with a covenant kind of love. Our ache for divine paradise is really an ache for a nearness to God. It's an ache to know and experience and delight in and dwell with the God who created us and loves us. It's an ache for relationship and intimacy with the God who created all things. We, we try to fill that void, that ache, in a variety of different ways, but we cannot escape what God has so carefully stitched into our souls, a longing for Him, a desire to be near His presence. Paradise is about God's people. But it's, it's about more than that. You see, paradise is about God's people in God's place. 
And the story continues to unfold in verse 8 through 14. We, we get this description of this garden that God plants. Notice it's, it's God who plants the garden. And we get a description of trees and fruit and it's life-giving and there's rivers flowing. There, there are gold and precious stones and minerals. Everything there is wonderful and beautiful and majestic. All the provisions of God are in that place, all for God's people to be enjoyed and used under His good guidance. The Garden of Eden was not, strictly speaking, a garden for man, but was actually the garden of God. Both Isaiah 51 verse 3 and Ezekiel 28 13 call it that. It is the garden of God. And so we see that Eden is this special place. It's a real place. It's defined with geographical boundaries, with real rivers, real vegetation, and the very real presence of God. It's a place that's filled with the blessings of God. Those blessings include fellowship with God and the abundant provisions of Adam's every need. One commentator says that the Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary that is a place where God dwells, where man should worship him. Man, many of the features, he says, of the garden may also be found in later sanctuaries, particularly the tab tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. These parallels, he says, suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary. We, we've been talking about this since the beginning of Genesis, that what God creates from the beginning is a cosmic temple. And it's interesting, when you, when you read further in the, the scriptures about the tabernacle and the temple, it's amazing. You want to know what's carved? First of all, the, the inside of the temple are often filled with both wood and overlaid with gold. And you know what's carved into the temple furnishings around the pillars and the beams? A vegetation, palm trees, pomegranates, gourds. Why? Why? Because it's constantly pointing them back to the garden. The door of, of Eden, so to speak, the gate leading into the entrance of Eden is on the east side. It's, it's not coincidental that the door going into the temple is found on the east side. We see here that Adam, as he's created in place in this garden, is a, is a gardener, but he's so much more than a gardener. The very presence of God was key to this garden. The fact that there is a river that flows out of this garden is incredibly important. Notice this river is the, 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 the key water source that splits off into four separate rivers. But the idea here is that this is where life is going to come from. Water is always an important source of physical life, but it's also here important because water flowing from the place of God's presence becomes this picture in later scripture of the abundant blessing of God that flows from the place of God's dwelling. Let me just show you some scriptures that pull us, that pull from Genesis. I'll throw them on the screen in pretty quick fashion, so just kind of follow along here on the screen. The first one is Psalm 46 verse 4. Listen to this. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. Rivers are the source of life flowing from the very presence of God. Look at this next, uh, coming out of Ezekiel 47, 12. And on the banks of, this is Ezekiel, by the way, 47, if you read there, it's describing this temple imagery, this kind of cosmic temple scene. And here's what it says in verse 12. And on the banks of both sides of the river, th there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit no, not fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows, listen to this language, from the sanctuary sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. By the way, this isn't on the screen, but it, doesn't that language sound so similar to Psalm 1? Psalm 1, the, the blessed is the man, right, who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. He will be like a tree that's planted by streams of water that bears fruit in its season. Its leaves never wither, and all he does, he prospers. Do you see the connection here? The idea is this. The, the man or woman who thrives and prospers, who is blessed by God, is the one who is planted in the very presence of God, the life-giving water of God. 
Look at this next verse. In Revelation 22, the very end of Scripture pulls this together. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And let me give you one more. You're like, what? what well, how do we access this now? Listen to what Jesus says. Listen, in John 7, 38 and 39, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see what Jesus is saying? Listen, listen. the presence of God has always been in the temple of God. It was in the Garden of Eden, the very first temple, and the water of life flowed out of there. It will be in a future temple at the very end when there will be no temple because God will dwell with man again. But now, now, listen, we are are the temple of God and the spirit that is deposited into us is the water of life through which, listen, our souls flourish and bring forth great fruit to the glory and honor and praise of God Almighty. The spiritual blessings flow abundantly from the presence of God. And in the middle of the garden, Not only are there these rivers, there are two trees. One is called the tree of life. It's likely that this tree was necessary to sustain and perpetuate physical life. Kind of like a a fountain of youth, a tree of youth, that's what we see here. You could say it like this, that whatever was growing on this tree was of such incredible spiritual and physical value. It's kind of like the the very first real supreme superfood, okay? It's not kale, it was in the garden. And it actually had power, this is, it actually had some kind of inherent power to actually sustain physical life. Not in some kind of a temporary way. God provides the tree of life to make death unnecessary, which is why, by the way, when access to this tree is cut off, death becomes the inevitable reality for not only Adam and Eve, but all humanity. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, a cherubim are placed with flaming swords in front of the garden so that they cannot again gain access to the tree of life. Death will become inevitable. But it's interesting as we, we consider just the, the fact that God places the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Here's what I want you to see. The tree of life represents this, this sort of pre-fall grace. It indicates that though human, the human body was in some sense created mortal, it was not God's original plan for us to feel the constant burden of impending death. It was a tree that brought healing constantly to the, the physical body that sustained it in an unusual way. And the description of the garden is, is amazing. It's, it's just this unbelievable place. It truly is a, a place of paradise. It's filled with all that is good. Everything tastes so sweet, so perfect. The colors are so vibrant. The landscapes are all so breathtaking. Everything is good. And every time you look at what is good, it causes you to pause and rejoice in the God who is good. This truly is a a temple sanctuary. It's a place that is rich with God's life-giving provision and his life-giving presence. And again, I want you to think of later temples, sanctuaries in, in both the tabernacle and temple. I want you to consider what was placed inside the temple. We call it a, a, a lampstand or a menorah. It was modeled, by the way, after a tree. It's described as having like buds. It's, it's reminding the people of God of the tree of life. That life is found in the light of God's presence. 
There's a table set up in the temple sanctuary with the bread of presence, a constant reminder, listen, that the people of God are dependent upon the sustenance that God provides. They're dependent upon feasting on God himself. In the temple, they would place the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And inside that Ark, among a few other things, was those two tablets, the law, the Ten Commandments, intended to govern God's people in God's place, in the midst of God's presence. And if the world is as God's cosmic temple, then the garden, here's what you need to see, is God's most holy place. The holy of holies where God dwells uniquely and intimately with man. We're going to see this later. That They walk and talk with God in such an intimate way. So so what? What's, What's the point of all this? Here's the point. It's very simple. We see so clearly here, don't we, that we were made not only by God, but we were made for God. The greatest joy and delight in life It's not found apart from him. It's not found in rejecting him or resisting his word, his rules, his regulations. It's not found outside of the the bounds of his blessing. It's found within them. And what we see is that we were made to be in God's place in the midst of God's presence, but you were also made to work with him. You see, divine paradise is all about God's people in God's place fulfilling God's purpose. God not only provides life, but verse 15, he actually tells man in a general sense what his role is going to be. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things, to work it and keep it. God not only provides life for man, but he also provides work. And when I talk about work here, I mean it in the broadest sense. We, we all work in a variety of different ways. Some of us work vocationally. We earn money for our work. Some of us are working at our education. Some of us are working as parents or, or in the home raising children. Some of us are, are working in the church of Jesus Christ. We're all called to work in a variety of different ways. And when we see that Adam and humanity is placed in the garden to work it and keep it, we understand a little bit more of the importance of work. The, the sense here of working it and keeping it It's about caring for and cultivating God's good creation. It's about being stewards of what God entrusts to humanity. The two words that are used here are really fascinating. The word that's used for working in the garden is the Hebrew word abad. It means to work. And the other word is samar, which means to keep. But these two words are used not only here for human work, they're also used, the only other place they're used in conjunction together is in the book of Numbers when it comes to the priestly duties in the temple. So you can see again the The temple overtones, there's priestly overtones. So Adam, here's what you can see, we know this, Adam is considered to be both a king, right? He's to take dominion, he's to rule over God's creation as God's vice regents, but he's not just a king, he's a priest king. He is to be a priest on behalf of God, in God's temple. I want to just show you four things quickly about the nature of work that we can learn from this passage. The first is this. First, a work is worthy. Work is something, in other words, that is beneficial to human beings in fulfilling the calling that God has given to them. That this first word, abad, in Hebrew, it basically just means work. But that's actually not the only way it's translated in English. Sometimes it's translated with the word service. So work, in other words, is service. It's service to God and it's service to others. It's not primarily and fundamentally about self. And that means that work has some kind of inherent and divine value. It's not something, much to our chagrin, that is cursed by the fall, that is simply cursed by the fall and is no no longer good. It was something that was created before the fall and is declared by God to be good. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that we actually get to do. It's one of the ways that humanity gets to be like God. God works. We work. 
It's harder now because of the fall. There's no question about that, but it is still good. But this word abad is also the same word that's used all over the Hebrew Bible for worship. So I want to show you this secondly, that work is also worship. Work and worship aren't two separate ideas. They're actually connected at the hip. And we think of, uh, of worship, oftentimes we just simply think of it as something we do every Sunday, right? We get together, we sing a few songs, there, there we've worshiped. And, and listen, I don't want to minimize the significance of singing to God as the people of God. That is certainly one of the most important ways that we worship God, especially corporately together. But what we see here is that a Genesis-shaped worldview reminds us that actually all of life is worship. The way you work is worship. The motivation for your work should be underpinned with with this idea of worship to God. I get to be like God. I get to do this for God. But it's more, work is also watchfulness. The next word that we we need to take that closer look at is that word shamar, and it's actually even more interesting, I think. It's it's usually translated as to take care, and I think that's, that's pretty spot on in one sense, but it means, listen, here's what it means to take care. The the word in the lexicon means this, to watch over, to protect, to guard, to police. The sense here, listen, I want you to put this in a priestly mindset, okay? The, The priests were supposed to be the guards. They were the policemen in some sense at the temple. And you want to know what they were primarily supposed to do? They were supposed to make sure the consecrated and the holy things were kept holy and the unclean things were kept out of the garden. You see that? Out of the temple. No unclean. No sins allowed in. This is setting us up for the fact that some weird talking serpent is going to slither its way into the garden. And as the priest who is the policeman and the guard of the temple, you want to know what Adam was supposed to do the moment he saw a talking snake? Chuck that thing out of the garden. It doesn't belong here. This thing is unclean. It's going to pollute what is supposed to be holy and purified. And so work has this idea in our hearts and in our lives, listen, of of a watchfulness of making sure that what we do is about the holiness of God. Are we protecting the holiness of God or are we diminishing the holiness of God? Are we allowing through our work and our efforts in this world, in life, to promote the holiness and purity of God or are we staining it with sin? There is the spiritual dimension to human work because it's done as service to God and it has the the purpose of faithfully keeping the instructions of God's law. So part of our work, I want you to see this, part of the work that God has given you, you're a Christian today, if you're a follower of Jesus, part of the work that God has given to you is the purity of yourself and of the bride of Christ. And I think that means that we're not supposed to be lazy with this work. We're supposed to be thoughtful, a thankful, diligent, worshipful, all of those things. But let me apply it another way. Isn't it interesting that Peter, in 1 Peter 1 or 2 verse 9, he says that in Christ, listen, those who are in Christ are a royal priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. Why is he using that language? He's, he's, he's grabbing the echoes of Eden. And here's what we need to see, that if we're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, Eden is actually restored in us in part as God's presence has taken up dwelling in his people. He's building us up, Peter says, into a a holy temple made of living stones. We've been given, let me frame it like this, we've been given access to the tree of life And we have been granted eternal life. John 15, Jesus said this. He said, I am the true vine. And as we abide in Christ, we not only walk with him like Adam and Eve did, we actually work for him like they did. You say, what does this mean? Here's what it means. It means we are to strive to maintain and preserve the presence of God in our lives and in our fellowship. Let me just give you a couple practical things, high-level general applications. First, it means this, work hard at purifying yourself from sin. 
Work hard at purifying yourself from sin by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. Root out sin, any unclean thing in you. Here's another thing that you need to be working on, uh, creating patterns of worship in your life, intentional patterns and ebbs and flows of worship in your life. We talked about this last week, so I won't go into much detail, but let me give you one more. I think we should become experts in personal examination. We should be those not, not who are morbidly introspective, constantly beating ourselves up over our sin, but those who are good at looking at our lives in light of the Scriptures, the Word of God, and seeing where we fall short from God's good commands because we want to honor Him with our lives. We want to glorify Him, and we want to taste and experience more of His presence and power in our lives. Let me give you one more. Not an application, but an aspect of work. Work is worthy, work is worship, work is watchfulness, and work is witness. I want to remind you that humanity is created in the image of God. And as we looked at that, we saw this, that that so much of that implies this idea that we were created to both represent and reflect God to the world. We were created both to mimic and to mirror Him to all of creation. Eden is this garden kingdom, but the goal was a global kingdom that would be a thriving metropolis, a city of God. And so the call for humanity is actually a call to Edenize the world, to extend the glory of God around the globe, to create culture and build a great city unto God, to let His glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The plan and and project would be interrupted by sin. Physical work is still important, but it is hard. Yes, we work by the sweat of our brow. And in a fallen world, there is great spiritual work to be done. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, he he writes about how he and his, his friend Apollos Both played a strategic role in the church, and he puts it this way. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. Planting, watering, growing. Here's what you see. This is Eden imagery. And all of Paul's language builds up to this staggering line in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You see, Paul loves to call himself a servant of God. But if we're God's co-workers, co-laborers, that means we're not only working for God, we're also working with God. The kingdom project is now about going to the ends of the earth and preaching Christ. It's about calling people out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's about preaching Christ and him crucified so that people who are dead stones can become living stones and slotted into the living temple of God. And God has tasked every one of his children with this work. It may look slightly different for some of us, but make no mistake about it, part of God's calling upon your life, part of the work he has given to you is to go unto all nations and make disciples. Paradise is about God's people in God's place, fulfilling God's purpose, finally under God's protection. In addition to the provisions that God gives to Adam and Eve in the garden, what we see here in verse 16 and 17 is that the provisions have limits. Now, God gives a command to Adam. You can think of it like this, that God's good blessings are actually found within God's good boundaries. The command is is very simple. And the Lord God, verse 16, commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, just notice this. The command actually has a, a positive aspect to it that grants Adam the freedom to eat from every tree of the garden. God's like, look, Everything I've created is for you. 
It's good, and it's good for you to take and eat. Like, have your fill. It's all for you. It's all amazing. It's all beautiful. But there's one thing. There's one prohibition for you. It's right here. And it's, it's a prohibition with a penalty attached to it. The prohibition is that Adam is not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the penalty for disobeying this command is certain death. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. die. In the Hebrew, it's that dying, you shall surely die. You shall die, die. It's, it's this, this, this death that is irreparable from a human perspective and point of view. This death is going to be physical. It won't be instantaneously physical, but it will be eventually physical. And this death is spiritual for sure. It it, it creates a break and a fracture in humanity's relationship with God. There is a spiritual death and the consequences are not only a, a broken relationship, but the certainty of eternal punishment away from the presence of God's blessing, as the New Testament calls it, in a place called hell. You say, why did God put this tree here, right? Well, I, I think you can, you can look at this as a kind of test for Adam and Eve. A test of their loyalty to God through obedience to his command. The, the command is for their good. And the prohibition protects them from assuming, here's, just listen, from assuming a self-serving autonomy in sin and death and to live instead under the Creator's loving and trustworthy rule and protection, okay? So here's the, the tree symbolizes this idea of gaining knowledge and understanding apart from God's divine revelation, Okay? So the idea here is this. It's humanity's way of saying, God, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I'll figure it out for myself. I don't need to live under your good authority. I don't need to be dependent upon you to speak to me. I can do it myself. And so to take from this tree is to declare an autonomy and independence from God. It's a full-blown rejection of God's right to rule over his creation and man's foolish, foolish idea that they can somehow be gods in and of themselves. All sin consists of this kind of prideful unbelief, this assertion of human autonomy this, this willingness to doubt God and to know good and evil apart from Him. And so to eat from this tree was to seize this knowledge which represents a declaration of independence. It's a rejection of God's sovereignty and an unwillingness to live under His authority. One commentator says this, the ultimate motivation for this power grab is the naked desire to become gods themselves. Humanity is made to live by faith in God's word, not by a professed self-sufficiency of knowledge. That's good. And you know what? There's this frightening prophetic nature to these words, isn't there? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That day is about to come. We're going to see it in chapter 3. They will reject God's protection and they will plunge all of humanity into sin and separation from God. They will be exiled from this beautiful paradise, the Garden of Eden. They will be separated from the presence of God. Paradise will indeed be lost. But though divine paradise will be lost, as we know, it will not be lost forever. The communion with God that was lost by the first Adam's sin is regained through the second Adam, Jesus Christ's obedience. Through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're brought into the life-giving presence of God. We eat again, in essence, from the tree of life. 
communion, the Lord's Supper, it actually represents this kind of faith. We celebrate through the Lord's Supper, through communion, His faithful obedience, Jesus' faithful obedience. Where Adam failed, we celebrate that Christ succeeded. We celebrate that where Adam deserved to be punished for his sin, and so do we for ours, Christ died in our place as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. Our souls, listen, ache for paradise because they ache for God. We long for a new Eden where sin will be no more. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're being reminded of that day. We're reminding ourselves that that day is coming, that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, there is going to be a new and better Eden, Eden 2.0. And where Adam ate of the tree and separated us from God, Jesus, listen, Jesus would be nailed to a tree to bring us back to God. See, who can come back into God's presence? Who can be allowed to gain entrance back into the life-giving presence of God? Here's the answer, scripturally speaking. All who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. All who put their faith and trust in the death of Jesus in their place and his resurrection from the dead. You say, well, well what, what, will he accept me? Some of you, maybe you're here and you're thinking, like, man, maybe, maybe I'm too far gone. Maybe I've sinned too much. I've rebelled so much in my life and I've rejected, like, I, I, I have lived autonomously from God. I have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I have thought that I can be a God unto myself and I've not wanted to live under God's good rule and authority in my life. And you have no idea the wreckage I've caused in my own life, the shame and guilt I feel. Who, who can come back into God's presence? Do I, do I have a chance? Is it too late for me? I just, I just want to remind you, if that's you, just, can you just be reminded that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he was crucified between two criminals. And as he hung there dying for the sins of the world, being mocked and jeered, humiliated, suffering the wrath of God for our sins, one of the criminals turned and looked at Jesus And he said these words to Jesus, Jesus, this is an expression of faith, remember me when you come into your kingdom. A a man whose sin must have been so serious because he was being killed for it, a man who was about to take his final breath, leans over with with the last ounce of energy he has, Jesus, remember me when you come into my kingdom, and you want to know the words of Jesus, or you want to know his reply is, truly I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. 